With the pandemic still impacting global supply chains, there are several challenges that biopharmaceutical companies need to overcome to stay ahead of the curve. Today, we'll discuss FDA inspections, Drug Supply Chain Security Act, or DSCSA, implementation, and supply chain disruptions. I'm Amy Kotman, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode of Baker Hosts, we'll dive into the details of the FDA's return to full on-site inspections. We'll cover the strategies you need to consider for DSCSA implementation, and we will discuss the importance of being prepared for supply chain disruptions. Finally, we'll discuss how onshoring and nearshoring may offer solutions. Joining us today are Winston Curtin and Lee Rosebush, partners of Baker Hostetler. Winston and Lee help FDA-regulated companies navigate complex FDA and business challenges, and they'll share their insights on what to expect in 2023, including how companies can prepare for challenges ahead. Winston and Lee, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Amy. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I greatly appreciate it. With the return of FDA full on-site inspections increasing this year, Winston, what are some of the most common inspection mistakes you see companies make, and how can they be avoided? Thanks, Amy. My observation is this, is that biopharma companies of all sizes and resources really have to embrace the fact that FDA is reestablishing its on-site inspection cadence, which arguably, and I don't know how much an argument we have, was interrupted during the public health emergency. So companies need to be encouraged, and we are encouraging our clients in the biopharma space to adopt and or refresh their inspection best practices, right? So for example, having a before, a during, and a post-inspection strategy that includes establishing an inspection management process and and then training your employees how to manage an inspection before it occurs, Uh, communicating effectively with FDA during an inspection, and then after, you know, developing a cooperative team that includes business, the quality organization, the regulatory, and even legal to appropriately respond to any 43 observations. And then last but not least, I think uh, it's also very important for companies in the space to seek outside counsel help early in the process to really be able to get ahead of any jurisdictional issues or any other issues that may have come up in their strategy. Lee? Thanks, Winston. I agree. You know, another area that we tend to see some issues associated with with FDA-registered entities is they forget you can actually have an SOP on how to conduct an audit. And it is one of the things that we often recommend is that entities, whether they be pharma, device, wholesalers, food, cosmetics, is to have that initial SOP in place that says, what are we going to do when the FDA shows up? Or what are we going to do when any other regulated entity shows up, the DEA, a state board, et cetera? So that way, all of the team is on the same page to understand who do they need to call, who is going to take the lead, who is going to get those documents, And the fact of, as you point out, that we've been a couple of years now for a lot of these entities since they've been inspected, it's important that they have that sort of blueprint in place. So that way, when a governmental agency like the FDA does show up, everybody is on that same page. Lee, the implementation of DSCSA is set to take place this year. Can you tell us a little bit more about the legislation and 
how it will impact supply chain stakeholders in the biopharmaceutical industry? You know, the DSCSA, it's hard to believe, has been around now for almost 10 years. That initial piece of legislation that was put in place back in 2013 is like the little engine that could. It just keeps on going. And we as an industry have been waiting for some of those final implementations to move forward. Interestingly, almost 10 years later, the FDA just released a guidance document on how to look for suspicious activity and what to do with certain activities with with materials as to when it is released and what those track and trace requirements and documents should be looking at. So it's important, especially for those that have been waiting sort of for this final implementation, that they take a big red pen and they circle that November 2023 date that's coming up because the agency has made clear that DSCSA for the implementation, especially for those in pharmacies and hospitals and those on the provider side, are about to finally have that implementation that they've been waiting for over the last 10 years. For those that don't know what DSCSA is, it is in essence best known by its acronym, all right, or its shortcut name, the, the track and trace piece of legislation. It's that statute, that legal requirement, that they have some sort of document that we call pedigree that follows a product along on the drug side, this is a pharma-based aspect behind it, that says that where it was manufactured, where it was wholesaled, and ultimately goes down to the provider. So that way you have a piece of paper that follows that product all the way through. Now, again, this is a pharma requirement, not necessarily a device requirement, for example. And it's interesting after 10 years that we're about to finally see the implementation aspects go forward. And I think it will have a big, realistic, practical difference for many of those in the pharma and biopharmacal industry. For example, most people are thinking about this from a security perspective, as we mentioned a minute ago, right? The track and trace in order to ensure the product is what we say it is. But there are other realistic and practical uses for this. For example, we can now see from the FDA side, being we as an agency aspect behind this, could see if there's product sitting in a specific region in the United States, or if it's being wholesaled, right? Is it sitting at a specific wholesaler in this perspective? And it gives a better understanding on the drug shortage side to understand where that product may be sitting at and to be able to, God forbid, if we have another COVID or similar type of situation, to be able to help with the distribution of products across the United States. Winston, do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, Lee, I think you covered all the key salient points around DSCSA, right? And I, I part of the key themes here in our conversation today is really around biopharma companies having a, a very top-line view and an end-to-end view of their supply chain uh, and not just looking at some of these rules as sort of a stick, but an opportunity to enhance and and respond quickly to disruptions and be ahead of the curve. I mean, counterfeiting of medicines continues to be a challenge globally. And so having a good response and a good line of sight end-to-end on track and trace, I believe, is, is, is very important and key. As drug shortages continue to be a major focus for the FDA in 2023, Lee, can you tell us what steps companies can take to ensure they're prepared for supply chain disruptions? You know, this is an interesting topic that is being hotly discussed right now up on the Hill, as well as at the FDA. Unfortunately, as a nation, drug shortages continue to be a huge problem. 
you know, whether it is looking at the children's ibuprofen situation that we're talking about just recently, whether it's currently the albuterol situation with COVID and RSV for children, whether it was during COVID finding certain products. Unfortunately, drug shortages are a major concern. You know, the interesting thing about drug shortages, and most people think about this as a patient access issue or a health and safety concern associated with this, the issue with drug shortages themselves, it goes well above and beyond just patients and healthcare. For example, it's also a national security concern. If, for example, we continue to go down into a trade war or get into a hotly contested issues with China, for example, and China really wanted to bring us to our knees, they could simply stop sending us medications. So this is a more than just health and safety concern. This is really a national issue, a national security issue that I, I think will be addressed by those up on the Hill over the next couple of years. As drug companies here, it's important to remember there are multiple different ways that they could potentially impact drug shortages and drug shortage situations. For example, one of the topics and discussions is bringing manufacturing back here to the United States. In other words, to correct and to increase our domestic production of drugs here in the United States. Now, it's important to remember, it's not just the capability of manufacturing products here in the United States, but it's also the manufacturing and production of all the components that go into those products. And I think that is where we are starting to see some of the movement forward with the production of APIs and component-based products here in the United States. And I think you will see some encouragement for more domestic manufacturing of those issues as we move forward. You know, a great example of this drug shortage discussion is what we're currently hearing about semaglutide. So semaglutide, obviously most people have heard about that as the weight loss issue. It's actually approved in this situation for diabetes-based discussions. And I think that product in and of itself also brings up another potential issue for pharma manufacturers and for providers and suppliers to consider when they're talking about drug shortages. Specifically, oftentimes we talk about API and manufacturing, but in the semi-glutide position, it's really in how the product is used. In this situation, right, there's a difference between how it's being promoted for weight loss use and for those that it's actually approved for, for obesity and diabetes control. That's important because we as pharma manufacturers and those in the pharma industry have often heard that, hey, we need to be careful on how we advertise our product, right? We, we consider that for off-label use. There are many uh, false claim settlements associated with that particular type of issue and a lot of compliance programs and a lot of compliance issues built around that off-label use and the unapproved product discussions associated with, a, with an FDA-approved product. But especially for the drug shortage side, it's important that we continue to monitor that use of an unapproved product in those other areas. Because like in semi-glutide, if you start to see a large use of a product for an unapproved use, you may not have considered that for production purposes. And ultimately that could lead to a drug shortage because you're having overutilization of a product or which you would think necessarily might be a good thing. But if you're unable to keep up with the use of that product and it's used for a specific disease state, for example, here in diabetes, those with diabetes and you, who use that product for diabetes control may not necessarily have the product access to it. So it's important that we look at multiple factors when we consider a drug shortage, price, right, production, manufacturing, but also how the product is used. Winston, do you have other thoughts on that? 
Yeah, Lee, as you know, we, we like to give our clients uh, actionable steps to manage risk, right? So for all the aforementioned reasons you gave, we believe that it's important that biopharmaceutical companies pay attention, right? So pay attention to global demand increases for the components that are necessary for your products. And that means not just API, but critical components. Understand your shortage reporting obligations, right? Don't pause and wait until the issue has become so severe that you're now under stress and the regulators, uh, including FDA, are looking at you from a lens of stress. Uh, Pay close attention to API sourcing and your supply, including third parties, right? Where, Where are your third parties sourcing the materials that they're providing to you? Monitor your manufacturing equipment. Oftentimes, there's such focus on the actual production of the components that folks fail to realize that there could be equipment-related issues and shortages as well. And then importantly, establish a media relations strategy for your shortages that are likely these shortages that may cause significant uh, distress or disruption in the supply chain where patients and providers will have strong responses. Be in a position to craft a narrative as opposed to having the market or others craft a narrative for you. You, you brought up a, a great idea that I'd like to follow up on there, especially with the media discussions. You know, we've, we've seen, for example, all of the discussions around children's ibuprofen. And as somebody who has multiple children, right, obviously that one hits home. And I know a lot of my colleagues and friends have mentioned that specific product to me as well and the the limited access to it. And it's interesting because when we have our discussions up on the Hill related to policy aspects related to drug shortages, most of the senators and congressmen and women up on the Hill can relate to that because it's a product that we have all either used or we've given to somebody to use, right? For example, our children or somebody that are, that we're are close to. And I think that is one where we heard for a long period of time, look, there's a, a shortage of this product and we're going into a concern. And we didn't really hear much on manufacturing side or the supply side as to where this product was going. And, you know, to give a shout out to one of our clients, right? The Outsourcing Facility Association, that 503B Trade Association, I know that they have been working with members and with different 503B facilities who have made that product. They have a website that's out there that they have provided to those up on the hill and to any hospital. And for those listening to a provider side to say you can go there and find who's manufacturing that product or others like Children's Albuterol, for example. And I think that gives an opportunity, as you mentioned, on the media side to be able to help those parents who are of concern but also those providers and clinics who are of concern looking for these products to be able to help with the media aspect behind it as to where they can find these products for patient access. Onshoring and nearshoring have been widely debated as possible solutions to supply chain disruptions. Winston, how do you see this debate evolving? And what incentives do biopharmaceutical companies have to consider as possible solutions? Well, it's been widely publicized that the Biden administration's goal is to increase resilience and minimize disruptions 
by reducing what the administration views as over-reliance on foreign countries, especially China and India. I, I would say that's a goal of most biopharma companies as well. But the reality is that these supply chains are incredibly complex, right? And they're deeply global. And making dramatic change is, is often easier said than done. So I believe that biopharma companies will be looking for future opportunities to potentially optimize and restructure the supply chains for greater efficiencies, especially as data and technology continue to transform and streamline operations, right? However, clear guidance is still necessary for companies to take action in regards to incentives around perhaps tax and antitrust issues and bidding issues and pricing issues, trade sanctions and export control issues, disputes, and even ESG, right? Environmental, social, and government considerations that the current administration is keen on seeing implemented, not just in this space, but in others. Lee, what do you think? You know, Winston, you hit the nail on the head. As I, I gave that quote earlier about China and if they wanted to bring us to our knees here. And I think your comments on mainland China and India and things like trade sanctions and export controls, for example, are ultimately major factors and potential keys here. Because what may be great for things like the steel industry or trade tariffs and things like that that was talked about during the last administration and previous administrations could ultimately have an impact here on the supply of APIs, right? For example, during COVID, right? I'm not saying the product should be used or shouldn't be used, but there was obviously a large talk about hydroxychloroquine and its potential use for COVID, for example. Now, putting aside whether it should or shouldn't be used, there was obviously a large request or demand for that base product during the last administration during COVID-based times. And what did we see? We've seen India, for example, say we're no longer going to ship hydroxychloroquine out of, out of India. So it's not just a Chinese-based problem. As we, as we mentioned, it could be any given this if the domestic manufacturing is not necessarily here in the United States, potentially anywhere international from that perspective you could see where the potential problem could be when you start to put in a trade sanction, expert control, tariff, etc., which may be good for one particular issue, have these ramifications on availability of APIs and production of products, when most, unfortunately, of our domestic manufacturing, or I should say most of our manufacturing, is done overseas and not domestically. Now, interestingly, right, during the last administration, as you mentioned, many of the great things with the Biden administration, during the last administration, right, we saw the want and the funding for increase in production here in, domestically in the United States. For example, during the last administration, we had the request and the grant of funding for Flow and some of the other manufacturers who were producing products and APIs here domestically. In addition, if you look up to the discussions on the Hill, you're seeing folks like Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz say the same thing, that we need to increase our production here domestically of our own API and products here in the United States. And that's why I think, whether it be looking at what the Biden administration has done on this issue, 
could look at the Trump administration has done this issue, or even if you go back to the, the Obama administration when they were doing similar type of issues and, and, and similar type of discussions, I think we're starting to see some of that quote unquote onshoring or bringing back in some of that domestic manufacturing and production and understanding this is above and beyond just healthcare, but also a national security concern. I agree, Lee, because I think, you know, at least the government as a whole has been better informed around what supply chain really means and the impact of supply chain from multiple factors, right? And now with technology, now with advances in the way we manufacture products, there may be opportunities for better collaboration across the board, government, industry, other key stakeholders, right? Uh, and, and still meet our objectives, while maybe not as robustly, perhaps some may argue, because it's hard to see full-scale manufacturing in the biopharma space make its way back to the U.S. We mentioned, you know, ESG and climate change and, you know, rare earths are also a key component in that conversation. You know, do, do we as Americans have the stomach for large-scale manufacturing? But I do believe that technology and advances in how we manufacture does create opportunities as we go forward. Well, it, it, that's the interesting thing, and I agree with you, right? Look, nothing from COVID was a good thing, right? But if we could take something gleaming out of the COVID situation, I would hope that would be it, right? We've been able to see with partnerships between government and private, and the, the importance here of domestic manufacturing, you would see, for example, during the COVID times, we had the federal government list out their 200 important drugs. We've seen them increase strategic stockpiles. We have seen them go down and try and increase production, as I mentioned, with low and some of the government funding aspects behind it. And so if we were going to take something good out of that COVID situation, I would help this would be one of those things to understand the importance of being able to produce these products domestically here in the United States. And we have somewhat of a blueprint as to how to do that now moving forward. Third-party risks are a concern for many supply chain stakeholders. As a final question, what are some of the more important things companies should be doing to manage these risks and protect their operations in 2023? Winston, let's begin with you. We've mentioned this throughout this discussion, right? There's such a heavy reliance on third parties, and those third parties tend to be global in nature. Right. And those third parties oftentimes rely on other third parties. So I in the theme of best practices and best actions, I think we, we need to really look at what are the best current best practices in this area around managing third parties. So I believe that there's six uh, best practices. One is really identify your suppliers. Right. Get a good understanding of exactly who your suppliers are and at all points in the supply chain, right? Cyber risk, that's become so profound in this industry and all industries. So understanding and qualifying potential cyber risk. So knowing what software, what systems, what devices your third parties are using and are accessing, 
and then estimate the likelihood and severity of the risk associated with the use of that your third parties are using and then rank each third party in order of potential risk. I also believe you need to have companies need to have a risk rating. So assign a risk rating to each of your third parties after you analyze the risk and the risk perspective. Define controls. It's important to make sure that third parties have the same level of risk tolerance as your organization, as you do as a manufacturer. Measure third party compliance. So you can identify, you can understand, you can determine, you can define, but if you don't measure third party compliance, then it's all, it's pretty much wasted effort in some regards. So after setting controls, set metrics so that you can monitor and measure whether or not your third party stakeholders are really in compliance. And then lastly, you have to continuously monitor third parties. Oftentimes companies uh, will do qualification and verification of their third parties and they rely on that documentation and they have a relationship with that third party that goes on for years and years. They never monitor those third parties and then an issue occurs, a problem occurs that could have easily been prevented had they had knowledge of it. Uh, and so it disrupts the business, I would say, unnecessarily. So continuously monitor. So identify, understand, determine, define, measure, and monitor. Lee, what do you have to add? You know, I think you hit most of the major factors there. You know, it reminds me of the old saying, right? Trust, but verify. And I think that's where this comes down to on, you know, good or bad. Most of our pharma companies, as you point out globally are contract based, they're virtual. However, you would like to put that from a factor perspective, right? They'll utilize somebody to manufacture for them. They use somebody to supply ingredients to them. They use somebody different to do lab testing. And very rarely do we see one facility that will do it all, including wholesaling and logistics out to the provider, right? They use all these different suppliers throughout. And ultimately, as you point out, if you are the quote unquote supplier or you are the quote unquote distributor of that product, you are responsible for all of the actions for those that take on your behalf. And therefore it comes back to that old saying, trust but verify, right? Agreed. Winston and Lee, thanks so much for this valuable information. It's been a pleasure, Amy, and we look forward to continuing to spread the gospel of preparation and having significant risk management strategies as biopharma companies get back to the business at hand. And Amy, thank you again. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk today. If you have any questions for Winston and Lee, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts of those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit bakerlaw.com.